ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It might surprise you to find out that about 200,000 Australians have never had a birth certificate and most of them are Indigenous. This creates difficulties later in life for people when they go to enrol in school, open a bank account or get their driver's licence. A national programme is trying to rectify the situation, enlisting the help of elders and community like Auntie Beryl to encourage people to register for a birth cert. Because you'll need it for everything throughout your lifetime. Because uh, I went on a journey with my sister who found that uh, her birth certificate didn't match up. So she once said to said to him, "Okay, make, give me the one that makes me younger." Auntie Beryl trying to encourage young people to sign up for a birth cert on Australia wide. How Pathfinders and UNICEF are working together to close the gap through a birth certificate program. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia wide coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. The sun shines on my old Kentucky home. The voice of the most well-known Aboriginal opera singer, Harold Blair. Born in Cherbourg in regional Queensland, his extraordinary life saw him go from working on a tractor at a sugar mill to studying at the Juilliard School in New York back in the 50s. The tenor blazed a path for future First Nations singers like 25-year-old Nina Corbe. Our reporter, Donna Harper, spoke to Nina, a shining light of the Queensland opera scene. It's the role of a lifetime, but for First Nations soprano Nina Korba, playing Maria in West Side Story means so much more. She hopes her main stage debut will pave the way for other young Indigenous singers. I think something about opera being perceived as this elitist traditional art form, there's absolutely some truth to it. Working as a classical musician, we go into the industry knowing that it is an incredibly demanding one. So at this point, I think she's, I think the facade that she puts on when she's in Café Mormons. It demands a great deal of our time, of our energy, of our commitment for not only us, but our families as well. Oatmeal and eggs. Oh, yeah. Oatmeal or eggs. Yeah. Just making up nonsense words yeah. to existing songs. It yeah. takes it takes a community to, to get an opera singer across and into the space where she is now and lots of others. I didn't have that voice behind me saying it would be okay, but you know, um, I was able to do that for my girl, so that's great. That's Nina's mum Kim, who has been instrumental in the twenty-five-year-old's dreams to become an opera singer. I am a First Nations soprano. I'm a proud Kawakuku Yalanji Waka Waka woman. You know, there is a tradition of song and a tradition of music in this country that has been here for many thousands of years. 
Opera Queensland's Artistic Director Patrick Nolan says Nina Korber is breaking new ground for Indigenous opera singers. There are haven't been a great deal of uh, Australian Aboriginal opera singers in the past. Harold Blair is 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 one people will, will know. The sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. You know, in, in terms of the, the history of singing in this country, Nina is part of that tradition. When I was in grade eight, I had a music teacher just give me a um, more classical song to get sunk into, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It suited my voice really well, and so that was the repertoire that I just kept pursuing and playing with and unpicking, and I really, really fell in love with it. I fell in love with the drama and the characters and the music and the costumes and the sets and the history of it. It was just such a exciting and rich world that I loved being a part of. Anytime I'm on stage, obviously there's me out there, but at the end of the day I'm there to tell a story and portray a character. So I love spending as much time as I can really finding the psychology of a character that I'm performing and their nuances and their intricacies and their little quirks. I think it's a facade. I think she does love the attention and I think she feeds off it, but I think it's because she knows that that's her power, her beauty and her allure. Because you need to think about, particularly in the context of an opera, what's gotten you to this point, as you would with any play or any character that you're working on. And for me, the psychological is a huge thing. I would be quite uncomfortable walking onto a stage if I didn't understand the psychology of a character I was playing. If I can think like that character, then I feel so much more comfortable just dropping into them and letting them take over when I'm on stage. I want to be able to reach people and make them feel something or bring them an experience that is either similar to something they might be feeling in their own lives or so they can relate or something that's completely different so it's an escape, whatever it is. At the end of the day, we're there to serve our audience. There are two women that instantly come to my mind in terms of great Australian opera singers. There's Dame Nellie Melbourne and Dame Joan Sutherland. And what was so strikingly beautiful about them is they were unashamedly Australian. They performed at the top houses all over the world, but not for one second did anyone forget that they were Australian. And not to say that I at all deserve to be mentioned in nearly the same breath as either of them, but they are the representation that I follow. Something about taking opera into regional areas, particularly like the Festival of Outback Opera, which I was fortunate enough to travel to with Opera Queensland this year, is 
we don't have the luxury of our theatres. We don't have the sets. We don't have the same kind of extravagant lighting rigs or hair and makeup teams or even the same scale of an orchestra necessarily. So what it forces us to do as performers is be more truthful. We can't rely on all the extravagance. We just have to tell the stories, which I think is a really exciting opportunity. And at the end of the day, that's all opera is. It's stories. It's telling the truth. It's telling the truth about our world that we live in, the world that we have come from and the world that we hope to see. Our reporter in Lismore, Donna Harper, reporting there. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Your birth certificate is your first piece of formal identification. And I think most people would assume that all Australians have one. But sadly, a surprising number of Australians don't. And the majority of those are Indigenous. It's estimated 200,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't have a birth cert. Ron Naden is from Pathfinder's National Aboriginal Birth Certificate Program, an organisation that's trying to fix this gap, and he joins me now. Now, Ron, how does that happen in a first world country that so many babies are born without birth certs? Yeah, it's it's been a, a major concern for um, for us, and particularly uh, a lot of our Aboriginal people, that they, they um, were too frightened to even mention about their child because it may have been taken away. And in many cases... A lot of them uh, had, had a number of children back at home and never used to get to uh, complete the registration forms at the hospitals. Um, that's been the uh, most unfortunate, but we're trying to get on top of that. So how are you going so far? We're going pretty well. At this stage, probably some 19,000 that we've got giving their birth certificates and registered across Australia. So Ron, how does it change a young person's life when they have a birth cert? What sort of th- stories have you come across? I think everyone's starting to realise that it is a, a very much need for everyone, uh, not just our people, but particularly for our people because of the circumstances they were put in. They can't get anything today. They can't, you know, even jobs today. You've got to have a birth certificate for a job. You want to open a bank account, you've got to have a birth certificate. So it's a big issue in amongst all our people. Ron, so it's estimated that it's over 100,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who don't have birth certs. So that's, it's a bit of a, it's a mountain of a task that you have ahead of you. But if you break it down this year, what would you like to see by the end of the year? I'd like to sort of um, move into, into the other states and everything. I can see if we got some funding behind us, we could really make this program really come alive. That's what I'd love to see it. And Ron, are you able to provide that service free for people? Yes. Uh, that's important, obviously, that you can. Yeah, it is. I mean, that, that's that been the biggest issue on top of, um, you know, uh, the issues of the early years. There's no money when you've got big families. Uh, is that something that should be looked at? Should we have to pay for our birth certificates at all? I take the line of what UNICEF even, they kept saying that it should be a free service, but there's certainly going to be some costs that uh, need to be considered but you know not over the top of what we've been um, receiving at this stage anyway. 
Are you hopeful that you might get a, a philanthropist to help you with this or extra donors or are you really pushing for federal government or state government um, funds to help this uh, program? Well, everyone, as much as much as we can, you know, like um, the clients, we can't do without them and the donors that have come on board, they've been fantastic uh, because uh, what they're doing is, is making it easy for us to get out to those communities provide we see a service and um, you know we're getting a, a win-win position at this point. Ron Naden, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide today. Not a problem thank you very much for your time. Ron Naden speaking to me a little earlier now if you want to find out more about this head to the pathfinders.ngo website. ABC Australia Wide With many people enjoying a day off today, many people are out casting a line. And for some people, fishing can be very peaceful. And for others, including myself, it can be quite frustrating when you don't catch anything. But for 13-year-old boy Cooper Smiley, it's his lifelong obsession. And he's travelled far and wide in search of the big one. But as Pat Heaney explains, his angling adventures have allowed him to do far more than just catch fish. Oh, that's a big fish. That's well over a metre fish. Cooper Smiley is an angler at heart. Um, When I was about two or three, my dad took me down to a pier and I caught my first ever fish, which was a tailor. And then ever since then, I've always asked him to go fishing. Keep the rod tip up, Dill, keep the rod tip up. He's caught almost every species on Australia's east coast, but still has a few more on his bucket list. Well, I want to catch a really big barramundi that's probably over like 120. And a mangrove jack over 50 would be something really cool. I don't know, it's just always peaceful and quiet. And I just get to sit down and relax all day until there's a fish on. And yeah, it's pretty fun, I guess. 13-year-old Cooper has a rare condition which causes intense, painful reactions when his skin is exposed to air and water. Complex regional pain syndrome sends mixed messages between the nervous system and the brain. The disease affects around 5,000 people in Australia and is known as the world's most painful, incurable condition. So it can be quite a hassle to deal with at times, um, which can be quite debilitating and I have to go out in a wheelchair um, sometimes. And yeah, so it can flare up from doing too much activity. So I've got to sort of limit myself when I go fishing. Cooper's mum, Melinda, says his symptoms can change rapidly. If that pain flare decides it's going to hang around for a while, he can spend months and months at a time in bed and unable to really mobilise. And that's why we make the most of every single opportunity that we can to be able to go out and enjoy life and and have fun because we actually don't know what this afternoon will even look like. The Newcastle-based Smiley family have taken that sentiment to heart. And four years ago decided to hit the road. It was a dream of ours a long time ago to be able to travel and and see the country ourselves. And Cooper had an accident and was diagnosed with CRPS. And we had the challenges of that for a few years while we learnt to live with that condition. And then we went, you know what, life's short. Let's just get in the van and travel around and we work and we stay and we immerse ourselves in local communities and we love it. They've travelled up and down Australia's east coast and after Cooper gained millions of views on fishing videos posted to social media, the next destination is dictated by his angling adventures. We didn't expect the fishing to take off the way it has. One day he took an old GoPro out with him and and took some footage and he popped it onto YouTube and there you go. It just went from there and it just became a little fishing rod to a bigger fishing rod. 
We now travel with two cars and one car is full of fishing gear. President of the Purple Bucket Foundation, Kim Allgood, believes Cooper's work is vitally important. There's not a lot of awareness about CRPS. We still have doctors and pain specialists and what have you that aren't too sure what it is or how to treat it. I can't imagine having this sort of pain if I was a younger person. Um, I think it would be extremely difficult. I think we automatically think with our children, no, oh, it can't be that bad, give it a rub, it'll be better. But with CRPS, it's, it's not that simple. And it takes time for anybody and everybody to even really think, oh my God, it must be bad, um, because rubbing it's not going to make it better. So I think we all need to really stop and think, especially our medical community. We need to trust our kids, give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt. I mean, our kids with CRPS are really in a lot of pain. They need the correct treatment. They need your help. And um, they're suffering because of it. And um, we need to do something about that. Cooper says he's grateful to have a platform to share his adventures, both with fishing and his rare condition. Well, I'd like to do really well on uh, my Instagram and TikTok, even better than I already am. Um, because that's bringing a fair bit of awareness to my condition anyway. I've been working with a few different foundations and uh, help uh, upskill some doctors on how to deal with it better. And um, I've been working with their CRPS Awareness, the Purple Bucket Foundation, writing some uh, news articles and stuff uh, to post in their newsletter. And um, yeah, it can be something that's quite hard to live with. It was a little bit of a tough experience to start off with. Um, otherwise, just a bunch of big uh, freshwater species that I've been chasing for a few years and yeah. Cooper Smiley finishing that story from Pat Heaney. In many parts of the country, people are already out camping for this long weekend. But in Victoria, authorities are letting residents know they'll be out on patrol to try and prevent bushfires. Popular campsites, including along the Murray River in Echuca, are wet after recent flooding. But authorities are now worried about increased fuel loads increasing the risk of a bushfire. They're urging residents not to leave campfires unattended. Shannon Schubert has this story. Yeah, good, thanks. We're just on patrol. I'm from Parks Victoria, Graham's from Conservation Regulator. It's business as usual for these authorised officers as they patrol campsites along the Murray River in Echuca on the border of Victoria and New South Wales. You know, if it's not in full flame, it's not a full fire, but if it's it's still hot, it's still a fire, it's still escaping. Especially around these campsites. But campers can expect to see more of them as Parks Victoria and the Wildlife Conservation Authority turn their attention to unattended campfires. In Victoria, authorities have discovered more than 100 unattended campfires over the last two months. So, for example, this campfire today, someone's obviously had in the past, so they've piled up their wood separately. Parks Victoria Ranger Team Leader Lauren Smith says more crews are out at popular camp spots. Teams are out assessing areas that may receive uh, increased visitors and increased campfires that may escape and pose a risk to this increased vegetation growth. So to mitigate those risks, crews are out often assessing the areas and treating the areas by slashing, mowing and brush cutting areas as much as we can. It is illegal to leave a campfire unattended and officers say a lot of people don't know how to properly construct a campfire or extinguish one. Yeah, campfires are kept to no bigger than a metre by a metre, cleared around 
Uh, so there's no leaf litter surrounding the campfire, extinguished with water when leaving. People often think putting campfires out can be done by covering them with soil, which is not the case at all. It creates a quite hot oven under, under the ground, which can then escape into uh, bushfires and not keeping an eye on your campfire. Wildlife and Conservation Officer Graham Watt says those caught doing the wrong thing could face a fine of up to $19,000. For something like a, an unattended campfire, uh, can be it can start from $577 and can, if it goes to a prosecution, can lead up to $19,000 for an individual. And that's obviously the extreme where um, a campfire's got out and caused damage to people's property or personal safety. Wet weather and flooding in Victoria in recent weeks has soaked some campsites. But it's also increased vegetation around the sites, increasing concerns for authorities about the potential for campfires to turn into bushfires. I've never seen water here before. Every year uh, we have a, a percentage of uh, campfires that uh, escape. Obviously with the floods that uh, we've had in recent times has uh, increased the vegetation, the growth of the vegetation. Obviously uh, gives more fuel for the fire. Potentially could uh, lead to bigger fires uh, further distances. So Officers will be out in force this weekend and over the rest of the summer to make sure people do the right thing. Shannon Schubert reporting there from Echuca. Finally, We're going to head to Tamworth to the Country Music Festival, which is already in full swing in New South Wales. Now, the festival is not just about music. It's also about the rodeo. The very best of the nation's rodeo riders, including 100 teenagers, are there for the national finals. And our reporter, Laura Webster, went to meet some of the younger riders who have some very big dreams. With 150 junior competitors from right across the nation vying for the top titles, their enthusiasm and energy is infectious. All of them are dreaming of a career in rodeo, starting with 14-year-old Lacey Bazant from Cowra in New South Wales. I grew up in Sydney with rodeo since I was two. We've been doing it for ages. My dad's a pickup man, so he'll be helping picking up Bronx riders tonight. It was the first time my horse actually ran in this arena, and we did take out the win. And in the breakaway, I did miss my calf, but we've got another two days, and I'm determined to catch it. So tell me, what's it taken for you to get here to the Nationals? How much work and time and training goes into that? We train like every single day. Connie and my, so my sister Connie and I would be up the back of roping calves every single afternoon or morning, it depends, throughout the day. And then we'll just be on my, my barrel horse and just work him, make sure he remembers what to do. And yeah, it's a lot of determination. You've got to really want it. That's a dream 16-year-old Sophie Edmonds from Marundi also shares. I've been rodeoing for about eight years and I started off in a local barrel race at the Scone Rodeo and from then I just loved it and have continued rodeoing ever since. What is it about rodeo that you love that's just got you hooked? I love the atmosphere and all the like the adrenaline rush when you walk into the arena. It's just amazing. Of course, it isn't all about the barrel racing or breakaway roping. There's plenty of up-and-coming bull riders here too, like Willow Tree's 15-year-old Bailey Searle. Um, I grew up in Goulburn, started getting on potty cars when I was little and just looked up to Dad and I was off from there. 
dad was bull rider for many years. He qualified for the finals 17 times, I think, and rode bulls and bareback horses. So a big inspiration. Yeah, yeah, I look up dad a lot. Do you remember your first ride on a potty car? Um, I remember my first ride on a potty car for the rodeo, Taraga Rodeo, I um, actually won it. <laughs> Set you up for success, Bailey. Yeah, yeah, it was good. <laughs> So tell me, how far have you come since that very first ride? What's been involved in perfecting your sport and, and how you perform in it? Oh, well, I try to get on many practice balls as I can during the week and Dad helps me with everything a lot. Tells me what I do wrong and right, so it's good to have Dad here. What's your future in the sport look like? Are you going to stay around? Yeah, I want to go to college in America and get a scholarship over there, but, um, yeah, I want to competing PRCA rodeos in the States and do what Kai Hamilton just did, so yeah. That's 15-year-old junior bull rider Bailey Searle, who aspires to be the next Kai Hamilton. And if you haven't heard of Kai Hamilton, he's from Mackay and he's earning big money in the US bull riding. And Bailey was speaking there to our reporter, Lara Webster. And that is Australia Wide for this Friday. The producer of Australia Wide is Alex Hyman and we'll both be back next week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.